as soon as you are able, and I am willing to make the break that we are on the brink of. Life is on the table, my cup is spilling, waiting for you to take a drink of. But if you tire of the same old story, I'll turn some pages. I'll be here when you are ready to roll with the changes. Yeah, to roll with the changes. Roll, keep on rolling. Oh yeah, keep on rolling. Keep on rolling, Howdy, y'all. Uh, yeah, it's time to get back to trim mode. The beard hits a level when it, it's no longer charming and you just look uh, kind of insane. Well, like hostile. So, uh, I've decided to start in stages bringing it back into... Uh, non-insanity. And eventually it'll get down completely to something approximating a adjunct professor beard where you got a 4-5 class road and no health insurance. Okay, so we are now up to chapter 4 of... Grab Growth, Dawn of Everything. This chapter, entitled Free People, the Origin of Cultures, and the Advent of Private Property, not necessarily in that order. So now we're past the Ice Age, and we're into the era of human history where you had a significant post-glacial settlement uh, among pre-agricultural civilizations. Uh, your classic stone-aged hunter-gatherers. And uh, as with all these chapters, they start trying to subvert a common understanding of the world to blow a mind in a way. And they do it here by saying that contrary to how we imagine that the world gets smaller and our understanding uh, of the world uh, is more expanded as t uh, civilization progresses. You know, the world is flat, as Thomas Friedman says. It's very much in, rather the case that as population increases, uh, this your understanding of the world, the apertures through which you understand the world, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That uh, early hunter-gatherers were able to range over incredibly long distances, uh, taking up port significant portions of a continent and have uh, migration patterns within that that give them an ability to interact with a vast uh, multiplicity of different types of people, engaging different uh, social orders, people with different languages and, and customs, but who were part of a shared sort of uh, clan network that allowed for uh, uh, reciprocal, um, reciprocal, what's the fucking word? I mean, mutual aid is what I'm talking about, but specifically uh, uh, reciprocal hospitality, as in I can walk over here and know that I don't have to worry that 
when I get to X, I'm going to have to, you know, fend for myself, that I will be offered hospitality. And likewise, if somebody shows up, I got to offer them hospitality. And that allows for a really a, a large uh, interaction with other types of people, which as populations grow and settlement gets more fixed, is replaced by the creation of very distinct cultures where you spend most of your time with people who have the same uh, languages, customs, uh, and specifically cuisines. Cuisine being sort of the defining material distinction because cuisine depends on what food is available in the area that you've settled. And uh, this makes life more circumscribed and makes our ability to access and conceive of alternatives to the world that we live in less, uh, less possible. How can you even consider doing anything differently if the only people you see every single day do things the same? Uh, the kind of inspiration you might have gotten to be fluid in your social practices by interaction with others uh, gets replaced by this reinforcing of the traditional relationships, whatever those might be. So this is one thing that sort of hardens social distinction and gets rid of the spirit of experimentation and fluidity that, according to Grabgrow, characterized early human social structures. And this leads to a discussion of, uh, okay, so now if we have solidifying social structures, uh, what are they going to look like? And specifically, how are they going to relate to questions of hierarchy uh, that have preoccupied modern uh, observers of human history, modern uh, uh, modelers, the, the people in the post-capitalist world trying to make sense of human history? Where uh, is their focus on? And it is questions of property. Uh, because Grabgrow points out, when you say, uh, when you're asking if a society is egalitarian, uh, what does egalitarian mean? Uh, the only thing that makes sense is if you're discussing uh, an equal distribution of whatever is most valued by the tribe, because you're never going to have equal distribution of everything. It is a prioritization of the equalization of value, human value, human worth, literally. Uh, and there's a bunch of different things that go into that, and property is only one. And there are examples of uh, uh, so societies that have accumulation of private property that does not translate into political power. And if that's the case, uh, given our understanding of property and uh, power being equivalent, uh, if that's the case, then using forcing uh, a singular concept of uh, property egalitarianism uh, doesn't really get at what we're looking for, which is societies that are free, that are, in point of fact, allow for uh, human discretion, uh, absent restraint from social structures. But because of the dominance of uh, the European world heuristic, the, the Roman the low Roman legal concept of freedom being connected to property, whereas the freedom is not the freedom to for yourself. It's the freedom over other things, other people, and that freedom can only be expressed by not doing what one wants, but by making others do what you want. And this is not, according to Grabgrow, this is not an inevitable uh, result. This, this understanding of freedom is not an inevitable result of uh, modes of social production. It is a, uh, it is a fixed ideology, basically. Uh, a, a understanding of the world that goes from uh, multiplicitous and, and, and superabundant 
to one where definitions are uh, definitions of concepts are made rigid uh, and and uh, one dimensional, basically. So that's why egalitarianism is so perfectly fixed in our understanding uh, with the concept of property, because the European understanding that has dominated and that we all live within is what we see th- history through. It's the lens that we view it through. So when we see questions of, egal- of uh, equality in other social systems that capitalism has interacted with, all we can see is property, because that is to us what uh, freedom means and therefore what equality of freedom has to mean. And because of this, it has become, uh, I would say, the bedrock of liberal understandings of human history, human nature, that because agriculture is what led to society and that society is, uh, over time, guaranteed to accumulate hierarchies in order to carry out the functions of an economy of surplus that as soon as you create surplus, you create hierarchy and you create inequality. And it is only in a condition where surplus is non-existent, is willfully uh, destroyed instead of accumulated, can you have equality. Now, the Marxists, the socialists show up in the 19th century to challenge this and set from within capitalism, right? Because these are, uh, this is an antithesis to capitalism that's being built up within it and uh, among its subjects who say, okay, we'll accept your premise because we're liberal subjects in that sense. We'll accept your premise because they can only see history through that lens too. But we believe that technology, which is the other thing that helps uh, create and uh, intensify social uh, and cultural production, create civilization, uh, that the technology that has been uh, developed in this process through accumulation of surplus actually can now redistribute pl- uh, labor in such a way to equalize property, to allow production minus the needed compulsion of property regimes of hierarchy. We don't need to tell each other what to do in strict hierarchies anymore and have uh, property stand in for that power. We can do it as people because we have all this technology. But if you don't believe that, and I think you know, the vast majority of liberals, and I mean this broadly construed as in subjects of capitalism who fundamentally accept the, uh, the theology of capitalism, and that is Democrats, it's Republicans, it's most people. It's even a lot of people who consider themselves Marxists, honestly. And in fact, I don't even know if I don't think that's true. But I'm saying, I think that Grabgro points out that this is because we have hardened our understanding and flattened our understanding of equality because we have lived only under capitalism. Now, I don't think that means necessarily that the uh, Marxist understanding of this is wrong from a practical consideration, because as I said, everybody's on this side of the lens. Everybody is structured this way, and it takes a lot more than just some interaction with ideas in a, in a uh, theoretic, theoretical uh, setting that's going to uh, overthrow these deep understandings of the world. And this is why so much of our understanding of hunter-gatherer societies comes from the examination of African hunter-gatherer contemporary societies that operate by a strict system of uh, uh, distribution and basically abolition of surplus. And as such, they live as Stone Age people. And this is the rebuke, Turgot's rebuke to uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, um, the Huron statesman, right? Oh, you guys, you guys think you're uh, more free than us, but we have all of what culture brings that is built by surplus. They don't have that. 
but and then even the 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 left wing rebuttal to that, which is uh, Marshall Salen's blockbuster, according to uh, Grabgro. I don't know that much about anthropology, but according to Grabgro in the '60s, uh, this challenge to uh, uh, opposition to broadly construed capitalism uh, that is not like explicitly Marxist in orientation. Uh, that takes takes for granted the idea that surplus equals hierarchy. Because that is, after all, what the conflict between liberals and conservatives is, right? It is not about hierarchy existing. It's about who will be where on the totem pole. And that that's the entirety of bourgeois politics. And that is what our political moment is. We've got a totem pole rising out of the ocean, right? And the ocean is going up and up and up. And it's creeping up, and people at the bottom of the totem pole are getting sucked under the waves. And the closer you are to the bottom of the totem pole, the more you're spending your time trying frantically to avoid uh, that last overwhelming lap of water, right? Because let's say in this situation, you know, uh, everyone is there on the totem pole as part of a class, but individually... They have ability to move, which boils down to their ability to upward, be upwardly mobile. And if you're at the very bottom of the totem pole, you're literally just trying to stay one gasp of breath away from oblivion. But a little higher up, you're, you're on your struggle. You're, or you're on your grind. And that is where grind set comes from. Grind set is politics for the apolitical optimist, basically. The apolitical optimist who knows that the water is coming for them and knows they have to do something about it, but cannot imagine a political solution. They don't have the faith in that as a a mode of behavior. They wouldn't be able to get anything out of participating in it because they don't have the conceptual frameworks to make it make sense to do. Instead, they make a politics, a personal set of values to enact out of grinding. And that is why uh, crypto and NFTs have exploded more than anything. Yes, capitalism has gone completely into the realm of abstract finance. It has to financialize its own synthetic production because there is no more return in the material world. But what's the reason there's money there is because there are suckers there. That's it. And the suckers are people who are just trying to stay above water. Now, in the middle area, you've got people who know the water's rising, but feel immediately comfortable enough to not have anything to do about it. Like, if they have a job, well, they keep doing their job. They keep paying their mortgage. You know what I mean? Like, they keep doing it, hoping things will get better. But there's nothing for them to do because they have a family, maybe, because they have the the social accoutrements of middle-class relative prosperity. So they think politically, how, what can we do politically to fix this? And that means they participate in political uh, uh, content. They make themselves into political subjects and then they vote. And then the parties that they vote for make politics and their politics is how do we rearrange the people on this fucking totem pole? And the liberals say we should do it according to some notion of uh, justice some notion of a socially liberal idea of, of human worth. The, the, it post a secular Christian notion, right? And the right says, no, uh, there is, God has spoken in his actions in the world to tell you who deserves to be where. And that's it. And any attempt to change that is a violation of literally God's will. And this is the psych this is the schizophrenic split within Protestant uh culture that occurs uh is precipitated by the Arianist uh controversy in the Dutch Republic and that reaches its fruit in the United States in the the twin political economies of the slave South 
and uh, the Merchant North. But it is both two understandings of the world as as places where God uh, is to be found, that God is, is a personal relationship, that there is no social order, that we are all uh, strangers to one another, that we have to comp- that we can only relate to one another as strangers in a context of zero sum competition. The Hobbesian world created by capitalism, not inherent in human existence. This is the theological question. This, and this and this is not Hobbes versus Rousseau, because Rousseau also has at his notion he has to have this uh, idea of innocence that's that's not an, uh, a recognition of humanity, which is what we're trying to do. Recognize humanity throughout time and across all distances. Recognize humanity for what it is, which is us eternally. And that means that there has to be a way for surplus to be distributed. Or for surplus to be created, and that for equality to reign. Now, for Marx, this is possible under communism. And here's the thing. I think I've really got here at the fundamental conflict, like the deepest rooted uh, conflict between Marxism broadly construed and, uh, and anarchism, is this thing. And... I honestly feel like you can believe the anarchist premise here. I think it's actually, it makes sense, as I said, spiritually, theologically. But that doesn't change anything about your analysis of the social world as it exists. Because we are now those subjects for whom uh, property is freedom. That will not be broken. But these people can make something that does that. And when you have done it, congratulations, you have achieved that goal of an egalitarian society through the application of Marxism as a lens for understanding life under capitalism and then acting from Marxist precepts. In in the broad sense, act uh, as though the material base of social relations is what creates social relations. Act as though that is true. Even if you can say no, 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 these are all uh, uh, these are all fr- fraudulent categories. This isn't what humans really are. There's so much more possibility. Obviously, there is, and I think they're doing a great job in this book of describing the efflorescence of possibility, the creativity of human social forms. But that is in a condition of fluidity that we no longer have. We have been frozen in amber. And our definitions of terms are not going to be revolutionized magically. They're going to change over time through the grinding application of uh, pressure in the form of class conflict turned into class war. So honestly, if the rest of this book is arguing that you can have you can uh, have surplus and equality in a meaningful sense, like I said, where humans are treated as totally as ends to themselves and not as means, where everybody is an end, not a mean, right? As opposed to where whether or not you're an end or a mean is uh, de- uh, determined by a eye of Sauron called God or the market. Because that is the premise of the liberal faith here, right, is that the market is not of human uh, uh, will. It is supernatural. It is God. It is a real God. And the thing is, it doesn't matter how you filter that belief of God, in what direction you you filter it, through Christianity, through secular liberalism, that is what you are worshiping, this God, called the market, called Yahweh, whatever. It is a God that has to be overthrown. But how do you overthrow it? 
You can't just tell people to think differently about terms that have been built through a lifetime of experience that register at a subatomic conscious level. You cannot just one-to-one have a conversation with somebody or expect them to see a story on the news or, uh, or hear a manifesto or, or go to a, 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 a rally that uh, is related to a specific injustice and just hear this as as our argument and then act from it. That time in human history has passed. That magic has deported the world. It's no longer in our mouths. Magic to literally reshape the world used to has always existed in human human race. We've always had the magic, obviously, like look around us to literally shape the world just by our minds, because that's at the end of the day what it is. It's not anything to do with our muscle or any of that shit, because that would just live in the world, not shaping the world, or shaping the world unconsciously, just by our existence within it, instead of self-consciously applying minds to the world. We can obviously have the power to do that. And at the beginning, the power literally was just in your mouth, the ability to communicate in a way to get other people to come to an understanding of the symbolic meaning of things to, or a a symbolic, a shared symbolic language that allows for a coordination of thought. But that over time, once it's fixed, certainly, and once you really get start accumulating and piling up that surplus, you have these technologies of coercion that don't require that uh, that essentially gain that magic to a large degree. They they take independent power, where their very existence reinforces their power. Separately from human will, separately from our human conscious understanding of shaping the world. We are no longer, once technology gains a certain degree of uh, intensity, once our technological lives become, uh, reach a certain degree of technological intervention in our existence, they form an independent variable, an independent will that adds itself to the previous dialogue between humans and the natural world. Eventually, you get this four-way conversation between humans, the natural world, and technology. And eventually, over time, there is a uh, shift from all of these, from the humans and from the earth, all of their power, their magic, gets transferred to the technological means of existence. But anyway, in these orig- in the in the Stone Age world, which we understand to be the only real place where we can be equal in a meaningful sense, because we don't have surplus. Because as we said, this is the theological understanding that the world with the technology is the only world. And that makes us worship the technology by one name or another. We turn it into markets. We turn it into allegedly a sphere that we imagine is outside of human will, but is in fact in every moment being willfully created and perpetuated by human hands. So that means the only liberal uh, alternative to this that can be wistfully thought for and hoped for and maybe even advocated for as an alternative to the right-wing embrace of hierarchy and saying, no, the stuff that you think is bad is actually good. You just need to be on the right, le- right part of the thing. And if you aren't, well, then you're not my problem. If you could get up there, if I think you're worthy of it, if you are worthy of it, then get in there and, you, and find your spot. The alternative to this is uh, the ethnologist uh, Marshall Salins, who, as I said, 
According to Grabgro, wrote an incredibly influential article in the 60s called The Original Affluent Society, where the claim is made that these hunter-gatherer societies in Africa self-consciously, as a political project, distribute and destroy all surplus because they are aware that if they start accumulating property in one direction, power will go with it and that domination will follow. And that therefore, and this is the important part, this is the the thing that rebukes Turgot and uh, the modernists, or uh, uh, the the modern responders to the the indigenous critique. Yeah, uh, sure, you're freer than us, but you also, uh, you know, you're half naked in the woods. We have houses. We have a car, or we have uh, wagons. We have fine pottery, and we have uh, we have mechanical devices that we can amuse ourselves with. We have books and culture. We have all this stuff. You have to spend 12 hours a day scraping for an existence, and you have no time for reflection and pleasure. So it's worth it for us to lose our freedom to have these cult, uh, comforts. But Salins claims, no, these hunter-gatherers work two to four hours a day at anything that you would want to call, like, labor. And the rest of the time, they get to chill. They get to hang. They get to have fun. Nobody's bossing anybody around, and nobody's feeling uh, any sort of lack that would need to be consoled by the existence of, like, a fine pewter tea set. Like, they don't need those possessions, man, because they're just chilling. And this became the liberal fantasy of hunter-gatherer society that had to be imposed on our entire understanding of uh, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle because it served the purpose of giving us an imagined alternative, a human alternative among existing humans in the here and now living uh, lives that we might imagine would be worth striving for. But according to Grabgrow, this uh, flattening is a huge distortion of what the various, the variety of possibilities of social order uh, among hunter-gatherers were. And that within them you had surplus being accumulated significantly by hunter-gatherer social order, by, by, by hunters-gatherers not doing agriculture. And that uh, some of them pursued incredibly intense work ethics and piled up tons of surplus and, and, and prized it and, and fixated upon it. Um, and this leads into a discussion of uh, a new vein of uh, archaeological uh, evidence that indicates that our this understanding of what hunter-gatherer lifestyles were like uh, is completely uh, fraudulent because we have new evidence, newer evidence, I guess, like since the 60s, that uh, massive structures of surplus were organized and uh, used to create monumental architecture uh, during the hunter-gatherer era when nobody is doing any fucking farming. The kind of stuff that would be impossible in those uh, egalitarian African hunter-gatherer societies where there is a a systematic uh, reduction in surplus. Here you have hunter-gatherers making... So for example, in Poverty Point, Louisiana, making giant earthen uh, complexes of mounds shaped from the God's eye view like birds and, and uh, arranged uh, geometrically with a standardized measuring system that was utilized throughout the region. The kind of stuff that we assume to come along with agriculture here we see existing totally independent of uh, anybody putting any fucking seeds in the ground. And not only that, uh, in this area that has no real materials, like nothing that could be turned into uh, material culture, uh, it's, it was, it's, they called it a Stone Age site without stone. You see a bunch of evidence of beads and and bowls and trinkets 
all from other uh, gatherer societies, hundreds of miles away. All of them brought there with no evidence that anything went out in a trade network. Just brought there and left there. This suggests, and this is very intriguing, and they're getting to a part now, they're getting to an idea that I'm, I'm, I'm starting, I gotta say, as much as I've uh, started this project with a raised eyebrow towards this book, and I'm not going to throw it away just yet, I'm not gonna bring it down just yet, but something that really tantalized me, uh, the suggestion that there is value in this place, but it might have been, um, it might well have been uh, a non-material value, some sort of hoarded uh, sacred knowledge that other uh, peoples came to participate in and to share with, maybe also an intellectual gathering place for the exchange of ideas. Uh, and that, you know, that part of the transaction is invisible to the historic record. All we have left is the stuff that was brought in. The stuff that went out was in people's heads. It's an intriguing idea. Uh, so, you have this poverty point, uh, in, this poverty point in historical site. You have uh, a bunch of historical sites that have been found since the 60s in Japan indicating that during their hunter-gatherer prehistorical era uh, called Joman in uh, Japan, you had massive agriculture, uh, um, monumental, uh, uh, monumental structures being built and falling down and being built again. And also some in Europe, too, around the same era, uh, meaning that there is no non-productive that that uh, that hunter gatherer societies are not inherently non productive; they produce. Uh, and I want to say also about this book, I don't really know anything about art, uh, about anthropology, so they are. I am absolutely sure that they're like pitching an idea here to me that it does not necessarily uh, accord to whatever the consensus in the field is, because I don't know what that is. Uh, they're trying to pitch an idea. And basically, I am here uh, critiquing their sophistic effort, right? Because they're actually pretty clear in this book that it's all about a political agenda. Like, usually when you're trying to uh, deny someone's argument about a historical event or something, you cannot make an appeal to the consequences. You can't say, this is, this is wrong because its implications are unpleasant to think about. And they do that several times in this book, where they just say, this argument, this understanding of how things work uh, has is bad political implications. And you wouldn't do that unless you if accepted on some level and are willing to communicate on some level that you're essentially marshalling an, a case here. Because I don't know what they're leaving out. I don't know what uh, what selective stack they're doing. I do know that, I mean, unless they're lying, there have been found these monumental uh, structures created by hunter-gatherer societies. Now, maybe there's a, like a significant argument about whether that's true. Maybe there are people who actually argue that this, these are agricultural sites uh, and that they're just kind of looking through the wrong peephole to uh, make an argument that, no, no, these are clearly from hunter-gatherers. I don't know. Like I said, I would not be surprised because, again, it's pretty clearly an attempt to to make a self-conscious, uh, uh, politicized argument and not necessarily to uh, conform to a rigorous uh, historical case. Once again, I don't know. I mean, I can't get too mad at them because that's all I do on here is I just spin yarns. Like, I don't fucking know if any of it's true. So it's mostly not uh, anything that you can really pinned down empirically, which good for me because I don't fucking know. I'm a dumbass. So I certainly can't fault these guys for wanting to uh, make that kind of pitch because it is way more, way more fun and easier than trying to 
make a dull, historically contained argument, because who cares? What's the use of that? The point, after all, is not to uh, explain the world, but to change it, right? Um, so, having, in their minds, dispatched with the myth of the non-productive hunter-gatherer, uh, they point out that one, another reason that the non-productive hunter-gatherer is, is a sacramental belief uh, in popular understanding of human origins is that it served the agenda of expropriating the Native Americans. Uh, fam most famously, John Locke in his good old uh, Second Shredasad government claiming that uh, one does not gain uh, property ownership rightfully construed over uh, land until he has mixed his labor with it. Now, of course, this is once again a, um, a theological argument, right? Like, this is theology. The idea of a right to anything through one's action. Who's enforcing this right? And, it's, and the fact is, is that it's whoever is capable of marshalling surplus. Whoever can direct technologically, the technologically aided process of surplus extraction can then use that surplus to enforce their will. And it is the enforcement of their will that is the conveyor of rights. Because you have turned yourself into God. But what's actually happening, you think you're turning yourself into God, or maybe uh, you, you, you are acting, right, from the idea that you are turning yourself into God, even if you would say, no, no, consciously, that's not what I'm doing. You are being pulled towards Godhood, thanks to the social reality of surplus extraction, of living alienated from the world, alienated from that feedback loop with the natural world, and having to fill it with a monologue. And in that monologue is your affirmation of your separateness from the world, and you're filling that gap with God, which is at one point, socially construed and separate, but that as technology intensifies and as life on one side of the uh, polar uh, binary between exploiter and exploited, between surplus enjoyer and surplus producer, that monologue eventually overcomes everything. Then isolation produces a world where God is you. And at first, you call it God because you have no other word for it. That's with the Protestant Reformation. But then, once you have more technological intensification, more alienation, it gets turned one way or another into the self. That is the liberal revolution. is turning the abstract notion of God that is in its death throes after the Protestantism shatters its social uh, basis and literally makes it in totally interior and intellectualized and symbolic. Under that uh, unstable concept of God uh, is obliterated by uh, accelerating technological social production. And so that gives Locke the idea that he's actually saying something meaningful when he says, well, if I have the ability to come to you in your land and do something with it, then I own it. It's because at the end of the day, he has taken who, who triumphs in, in nature in the contest for resources as God's will. Nature's uh, demand, whatever you want to call it, natural or theological law, it's the same thing. And, and trying to violate it is the only true immorality. The only true heresy is to try to interdict God's will, nature's unfolding preference, which, of course, is for the strong to uh, win, for the most powerful to dominate, for the guy with the fucking, uh, with the guns and the germs and the steel to conquer. 
<coughs> but Greb Gros' real point here, though, is that even in its own terms, it's a bullshit argument because hunter-gatherers do mix their labor with their world and do build things with it. They do things with the surplus. They reshape the land consciously. So they do it. But of course, they don't do it in a way that accumulates enough surplus to build a gun. Have populations that could uh, be marshaled into uh, military formations. And live close enough together with livestock to develop immunity to uh, biological weapons. It's that difference that makes one uh, one person gives one person the right over someone else. But the point here for what grab grow is that uh, there's nothing about hunter-gatherer society that just conflicts with the notion of accumulating and, uh, and utilizing surplus. And their next big example are the Calusa, which was a sort of an empire in southern Florida to the Keys of fisher-gatherers uh, who had an absolute monarch with the power of life and death over people had an elaborate um, uh, culture of jewelry and costumery, uh, a standing army that conducted military raids on neighboring populations. Um, and this is in a condition of superabundance, where just by the act of simple exertion of, uh, of uh, work, you're going to bring in a ton of, uh, of calories, basically. And there and here, what Grab Girl make a point that I actually had never really thought of before and is really basic when you think about it. And that is that one of the things that all of the hunter gatherer societies that currently exist or who existed in the 20th century that people examine to understand what hunter gathering is all about, by definition, are living in the most marginal and hostile areas in the world because nobody else wants them. All the land that anybody would want that had abundance of resources had already been colonized by civilization. Like, why the hell in a world where there is, especially uh, considering how far these people ranged, if they choose to settle somewhere, why the shit would they settle in the middle of a fucking desert? Why, why would they settle uh, in a deep jungle? Why wouldn't they settle, I don't know, Buy some water, like an estuary where shit just comes in and there's a bunch of fucking fish and there's animals everywhere and there's maybe a temperate climate. Why the hell wouldn't you go there? And there is nowhere you can observe hunter-gathering in those society, those areas because they've all been conquered by capitalism and property has uh, replaced liberty. Property has, uh, has borne its brand upon the human mind. But that's the how, that's where people would live. And they point that uh, the reason that there has not been a lot of archaeological evidence in uh, littoral areas until now, till recently, has been that most of the land that early hunter-gatherers would have settled in has been uh, consumed by uh, rising sea levels. And not like just because of global warming in the last 20, 20th century. I mean, since the end of the Ice Age. I mean, there's been significant uh, sea level rise. And that has swallowed a lot of sites that are also being discovered now. So complex societies in, in, in uh, coastal regions uh, existed and, and their, their existence really does contradict our understanding of what hunter-gathering implies socially. Like it can lead to surplus accumulation. But 
Now, Grab Groquet says, how much inequality, how much hierarchy and control really existed in these societies? Just because they might have had an absolute monarch. Well, they point to the, Na- uh, the Natchez civilization in Louisiana around this time that had a, a uh, god emperor on earth the, the, called the Natchez Sun, who had the power of life and death over everyone in his sight, but whose power extended to the village he lived in. Uh, and that um, where most of the Natchez uh, peoples lived was outside of the presence of the uh, the king, and whose interaction with the king's uh, messengers was one of, at most, the ability to advise, no real ability to enforce power. And maybe the Kalusha ha- uh, kings were less powerful than they appeared to... Uh, Spanish explorers who they very well might have had every intention or or every um, reason to act a certain way around. We don't really know. But once again, the point is that these things are much more fluid than we understand them to be. And And they end the chapter with, I think, another one of their most tantalizing concepts, which connects to the discussion of Poverty Point, which is that property, as we understand it, like this relationship that I said is is religious, right? Property is the will of God. Private property is how God's will is revealed to the world. That's how what everybody believes who is a liberal in the broad sense. Whatever the name they give this God, it is a real force in their lives, a power outside of human will. That's what I mean by a God. It is a power that has a will outside human consideration. We've killed the natural world. We believe the natural world has no will. It has no actual uh, power that we must respect because we've conquered it in our minds. But we conquered it at the expense of empowering this new God. Where does that come from? Where does that notion of godliness come from? And... Grabgro suggests at the very end of the chapter that the origin of uh, of hierarchy, permanent hierarchy, uh, might have existed in the one realm of private property that actually does persist in a lot of these even egalitarian hunter bands, which is sacred knowledge. People who have oh, people in even very uh, even the models of the most egalitarian uh, hunter-gatherer societies, uh, people who have access to sacred knowledge or objects hoard it jealously and have penalties that can be inflicted on people in the community who attempt to infringe on that ownership. And I think you could make the conclusion that if you want to understand the origin of inequality and why we're in the situation we are, if you wanted to create a new, a new uh, genesis story, it would be that the, uh, the, the original sin, the apple-biting moment, is the um, it is the alchemical fusion of the office of power that is necessary for the community to function. Like you need sacred offices, sacred objects, sacred rituals. You need a religious affirmation in order to. It's the engine of a social order. Whatever, once again, whatever you want to call it, that sacred ritualization is what distributes the consent through the community. It's what gives people reason to believe in each other, enough to cooperate with one another. And those offices exist to serve a social function. At some point, and not one point, but in many points, in many social uh, orders throughout all of early human existence, some guy, probably a guy, could be a gal, somewhere decided to fuse the office that they held with themselves. 
and abstract that notion of God. That notion of a will more than God, right? Like, we're just trying to figure out what nature, which we're part of, wants from us, wants for us, and us defined as society. For different reasons, probably like different discrete reasons everywhere, the same thing happens. One shaman, and then using their mind to communicate with others, using the power they have, the magic they have in their mouths, bringing in others, deciding to that, um, that what God wants for us is actually, and more importantly, what God wants for me. And very quickly, even in a, in a privileged shamanic relationship, you come to the conclusion, oh no, I can't do this. I cannot uh, affirm a separate will for the, than the community individually. Because even though I'm in this office, if I tell people to do stuff that's not for their good, they're going to say, fuck you, because they can. But if I use the power I do have in more intimate settings amongst key people, and I can forge an understanding with them where we can create a new collective best interest that is edited and away from the community, then we can assert authority over them. And there's actually another book that I think I'm going to read. I don't know if I'm going to read it on the show, but I think I am going to read it shortly. Uh, uh, let me look this book name up. I, I, I recently encountered it on Twitter and just thinking about like the, the, the parts of it I, I, I looked at there and then reading this chapter, they kind of, they click together. But the book is called uh, The Power of Ritual in Prehistory, Secret Societies and Origins of Social Complexity by Brian Hayden. And I'm going to read it, I think, after this. Because like that description that I am teasing out in my own mind to make sense of, of how, of the implications of this, this chapter of Grab Grow, the first thought I have is, oh, a secret society a ritual group of people doing sacred acts, sacred acts necessary for the community's best interest, but contain within them essentially networks, social networks that are independent of the group and that have their own rituals, their own arcane rituals, their own arcane beliefs, their own arcane symbols that are inherently illegible and must be illegible to everybody else. All right. So that's that chapter. We'll see what they got in store for us next. But again, I, I, uh, it is liberating to just remember, at the end of the day, these are the real conflicts that Matt, that uh, that I think like spark uh, real flame between like the 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 epistemology of a liberalism versus versus Marxian socialism uh, or now the, the 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 ontology that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, is essentially beside the point. Because we are through the veil. We are through the lens. We are the beings that were created by those arcane rituals back then. And so that means that we have to treat the material as real. Because the material is where, in all of those intervening centuries, all of that 
magic has been put. It's been offloaded. It has been naturalized. It has been consumed and reproduced and alienated into material. Unless you believe that you can do real magic on the mass scale, then you have to put your nose to the grindstone of uh, dealing with the world in a material through material analysis. As we, as you have to, in the very same way that you have to assume free will as a fundamental basis for action, whatever your theological, philosophical understandings of the world are. Because there are those things that you believe that are, that like really fix you to, uh, to your perspective. There are those things, those, those basic things that you need to have and you need to believe to prevent the sort of hysteric um uh and frenetic knee jerk behavior of people who don't know why they believe what they believe who 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 have accepted in the discourse a package of beliefs for social reasons they think they're political but they're actually social and they're and carry them around and use them as a mechanism for social interaction and the gathering of social credit. When they have to argue what they believe, they get mad. Because they don't, once you pull a certain amount of rope, you're just falling off the ledge. You're not getting, uh, there's nothing anchoring you. But that's for you. That's to anchor you. That's to give you the uh, the center to allow you to take questions as they come and really deal with them instead of getting panicked and emotional and freaking out and doing all the bad faith stuff that ruins discourse. A lot of it is just people trying to defend themselves from the panic of not knowing how to respond because nobody, nobody they never thought it through. And it's not their fault. Nobody's fault. But you don't have to argue those points. In fact, it's very bad to do so because nobody else has to believe and has to agree with you on them. This is the, the serenity of the believer that Zizek talks about when he points out that uh, Islamic radicals who blow up airplanes and kill people do not have deep faith. They see the uh, entrench the, the coming of modernity, and they see that, and they have a panicked, terrified reaction to it because they're afraid that they cannot withstand its blandishments. Fucking uh, the the trade center terror uh, bombers went to fucking went to a strip club like the day before they got on the planes. I mean, what they're doing is they're having a political response to imperialism, and it is based in the material politics of, of immiseration and, and humiliation, but it's filtered through a religious language, but they're just as ripped from their religion as us. It just expresses itself differently at the other end of the stick of modernization. When you're, be when you're being chewed up rather than having things chewed up for your imagined benefit. So Zizek says that they don't have a deep faith. If they had a deep faith, they wouldn't care about uh, immorality. They want that all that religious stuff is just built on a temple of the self that they can't acknowledge, and that drives anxiety and, and anger and, and rage and desire. And that's what we get instead of debate. And the thing is, complaining about it is stupid because we can't have it any other way. Because we are materially fixed in these places. And only 
material politics, which is politics non uh, politics materialized, as in action. And of course you say, well, what is to be done? Yes, everything seems impossible. And everything is impossible at a grand scale. But in your life, something is always possible. That's the assumption of free will that we all live with, right? Something is possible. If you want to act politically, you can, even if it's tiny. That might not be good enough. It's like, oh, the world, it needs more than this. But it's like, yeah, but if everybody is doing that, everybody is looking at the next step in front of them, then they're going to see things like real uh, organizing, which is why I keep harping on this, but the answer is in labor and is in uh, the labor movement. It has to be. We're back really to where we started, but in worse conditions because of the intervening years of uh, the destruction of the symbolic power of socialism that happened uh, throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. And we have to rebuild something else. It'll, it's still, it, who knows what it'll be called, uh, but it has to be rebuilt from the ground up. So honestly, like a book like Grab Grows, even if, it, like, whether it's right or wrong is sort of a material, will it make people think that they can act? I guess it's, a, it's a, reading through it, the real, like, question of, of judging whether it's good or bad, to me, is going to come down to, does it, when you finish it, do you feel like the real argument is, like, possibilities are material, we can do something, we can... Uh, like humans have the capacities beyond way beyond what we think of when we imagine just the, the 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 petty stooped billiard balls of history that we all feel like we are that's good if it's we can all just will things will politics to be differently through just enactment of it through a ritualized affirmation of our values then that's bad. So we'll see. We'll see where it ends up. It'll be like the uh, the 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 applauseometer at like uh, the Gong Show. And we'll see how far we get up the thing. Right now, I with all this stuff about like uh, uh, sacred property, I, I they that you had my uh, you've got my interest. But we'll see. Apparently, the second half of the book is where they just keep harping on horizontality. So. It, it, the, the dial might fall back pretty quickly. We'll see. But next week we'll do chapter five. We'll see what else they got going on there. Chapter five is many seasons ago, why Canadian foragers kept slaves and their Californian neighbors didn't, or the problem with modes of production. So, ooh, here we go. Shots are going to be fired at the old Moore himself. So we'll see how that goes. Okay, so we'll talk next week. Peace.